following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. You can do this practice if you can be a really stiff person, a really old person. You can be really intelligent or not very intelligent. Because mindfulness isn't about these, you know, relatively superficial thing. things like how old our body is, how stiff it is, kind of physical injuries we've had over our lives, or even the kind of personality we have, like we're somebody who gets angry a lot, or we're somebody who's greedy, or somebody who has sort of a sleepy mind, or we're somebody with a restless mind. I mean, that's really the the great trustworthy thing about mindfulness practice is that mindfulness or that quality of the mind that knows knows it's like this it can know anything in a way mindfulness doesn't really care what it knows right that's the great thing about it so just a short review and then we'll do a guided meditation and tonight I'll again I'll do some guidance with the loving kindness practice that's just an example of how you might work at home, maybe doing some loving-kindness practice at the beginning of your set and then changing over into a more pure mindfulness practice. There are many ways to do that, but tonight we'll do um, the loving-kindness practice at the beginning and then ending with the mindfulness practice. And just to remind all of us that the real essence of our practice is equanimity. So instead of trying to get something, we're practicing being free with the conditions of the present moment. And that's why that really connects to what I said earlier, that mindfulness doesn't really care what is being aware or what we're aware of. Because whatever it is, whatever the conditions of this body and mind are, the real question of interest is, well, can the heart be free with the conditions as they are right now. What would that look like? What would ease and freedom with these conditions look like? So if your legs really hurt right now, or if you've got a lot of emotional stuff left over from the day, well, what does freedom look like with conditions like this? So we're uh, operating, you know, we're entering this practice with, uh, you could say, I don't know if assumption may be too strong, but we're entering the practice with an open question. Like, there is this possibility of freedom no matter the conditions. But it's something that has to be realized. One of the great teachers of the last century, uh, a Thai Buddhist monk, his name was Ajahn Chah. Ajahn is just the title uh you could say it means teacher, and Cha is his name. And so Ajahn Cha had this wonderful way of talking about the goal of practice. You know, we, we use the word nibbana. But, you know, nibbana really means the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. It's like when the mind has ceased being caught in greed, anger, aversion, fear, and delusion then that's freedom. And his way of talking about freedom was the reality of non-grasping. We're 
waking up to the reality of non-grasping. And you see, it doesn't matter what moment in our life or what the particular qualities of the moment are. We can realize the experience, the direct experience of non-grasping in any moment. Like this moment, right? Listening to a talk, preparing for a meditation period. This is just as an appropriate moment to practice non-grasping as the more difficult or easy moments of our life. We really want to explore that possibility of non-grasping in every moment. In the handout, maybe some of you have taken a look at the handout for week six that I sent out after the class last week. And uh, one, one of the points I make about integrating practice into daily life is one of the most important things is to be able to remember what the practice is. I mean, just that basic recall, having enough information that the mind can recite to itself, like, what am I doing? What's this mindfulness practice about? And one of the pithy phrases you can use to remember what the practice is about are some of the ways the Buddha summed up what his practice, what he was pointing to. And he called it, like one time he said, uh, the supreme liberation has been taught, namely liberation to non-clinging. This is a path of liberation through non-clinging, or expressed or manifesting as a non-clinging to what's coming and going, to the phenomena, to the elements of experience that come and go. The heart, the mind, isn't clinging. Or another time he said, um, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Having heard this, you've heard all the teachings. Having practiced this, you've practiced all the teachings. Having realized the truth of this, you've realized everything there is to realize, to know. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So just to have that accessible, so in a moment of practice, you know, like I gave you the RAIN acronym a couple weeks ago, it's nice to be able to pull out some information when the mind's confused. So you can pull out the information of RAIN. Okay, Mark, it's simple. Can you recognize what's predominant? Or can you recognize the anchor that you've been working with, like the in-breath or the next out-breath? Can the heart completely accept it, allow it to be? Can the heart be interested in it? Can the heart relate with non-attachment, non-clinging? But ultimately, it's even simpler than those four sort of ways of remembering the practice, which is nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Or as Ajahn Chah says, you know, where, how might this reality of non-grasping be realized right now with this experience? What would that look like? Not to think about non-grasping, but to directly engage the moment we have and just to like, recognize how the mind or heart is engaged in grasping or struggling or and how by just recognizing the grasping, the way the heart or mind is tight, it, it evokes, it sort of, the mind recognizes the possibility of not doing that. So you might be here sort of feeling badly about something that happened today or worried about something that might ha- be happening tomorrow. And you can recognize this as a expression of grasping. The mind is t- 
tight about something. And you can get really interested in that tightness. Because to reject the tightness is just more tightness. It's like we're grasping the state of not this, which is grasping. But we can open to the grasping. We can not grasp the experience of grasping. Not reject it, not hold to it, not judge it, but just let it be, not grasping it. And then we realize the experience of non-grasping. So this is the amazing thing, is that every moment, if we're interested, if we remember and are interested, every moment this is available. One of the great teachers these days is somebody named Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And he's been in the West ever since the Vietnam War. He left to go, I think, to the Paris Peace Talks back in the late 60s, and then they never let him back into the country until not too long ago. And then once again, I don't, I don't think they've invited him back since he, he went a couple times in uh, maybe five, seven years ago. But in any case, he's, he's a well-known teacher. He's written a number of books. And he has this great way of summarizing what's challenging in practice. He says, the real enemy, you know, we, we have all lots of ideas about what the problem is, what the problems are in our lives. But he says, the real enemy is forgetfulness. That's our real problem. That we have a tendency to forget what's relevant. And what's relevant is the reality of non-grasping, or you could say the possibility of non-grasping. The possibility of this heart or this mind not in an adversarial relationship with things as they are, with the present moment. And that's why this really fits into the loving-kindness reflection that I introduced last week. Some of you knew it already. But you see, the reason why loving-kindness practice or that attitude of loving-kindness is so supportive of this path of awakening, mindfulness, is that it's a non-contentious relationship. Love or kindness reminds us of this possibility of relating without contention, without judgment. When we have a friendly relationship with somebody, or when we have a friendly relationship with our breath, or a friendly relationship with our body, or a friendly relationship with cold weather, or warm weather, or sunny weather, then the heart isn't struggling with the conditions. When our partner or our friend walks into the room and we have a friendly relationship, we're not immediately judging the person. Right? We have this non-contentious relationship. We understand that this phenomena, this person, this event, this experience, it's just what it is. It's a natural arising, giving, given all of these innumerable causes and conditions this person, this experience, this event, it can't be other than the way it is right now. So because of that, you see that that open, mindful presence is the same as this open, loving, kind presence. In the end, compassion and wisdom are just different ways of talking about the same thing, which is the reality of non-grasping, or this freedom that the Buddha pointed to whether you call it enlightenment or nibbana or nirvana or whatever, full liberation. It doesn't matter. I mean, mostly the, the words just cause us trouble. You know, we paint a picture and then we grasp it. I want that. I want to be this cool saint that has a <coughs> halo or an aura and 
hardly touches the ground when they walk, and everybody respects them, and he's able to, she's able to be so funny, and I mean, this is, but this is just more grasping. It's really not that different than, you know, wanting to be the all-powerful warlord of the universe, you know, with the great tanks and powerful this and powerful that and gold in the bank and so we want, you know, we tend to want things that we can grasp, but the real, what we really want, what really sets the heart free, is not to need to grasp. To realize that the heart doesn't need to grasp, because that experience of non-grasping only arises when the heart feels completely safe. Does that make sense? As long as I, my mind is caught in a sense of separation, sense of being apart, sense of being the self who needs something to be safe, then I'm struggling to be safe. But when I feel free of that sense of self, I feel really safe. And when the heart feels really safe, it doesn't grasp, it doesn't cling, it doesn't struggle. What does it do? It responds with compassion and joy to you know, whatever's happening in the moment. We call it the appropriate response to what's going on. Responding with love. Any thoughts about this before we do our sit tonight? Any questions about what I said? So you can just keep coming back to this if you get confused. You can either bring up the RAIN acronym that we've been practicing with, or you could just remember in the most simple way this possibility, this reality of non-grasping. There is this moment, there is this mind-body experience right here, right now, and there is this possibility to grasp, to get tight, to be contracted, and there's this possibility to not do that. And that just makes the moment really interesting. Like, here we are with these memories arising, or here we are with these sensations. And so we just see that, like, on the fence between grasping, struggling, non-grasping, letting things be. And if we grasp, we just learn that's not the way. So don't even get mad when you grasp, because you can just learn again, oh, that's not the way. And then when we're not grasping, and you feel that release, you realize, oh, this seems like the way. Yeah. And just uh, as you do that kind of practice, just to be aware, like, is there any grasping? Like you suggest, and when we want a response from people, then there can be a little grasping. But when we're free of needing any kind of response, then it's a real, it's really just a free gift. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So let's do our practice. Feel free to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes.
do whatever you can to have a stable and comfortable posture. And we've all learned by now that rarely the body feels perfectly comfortable, especially at the beginning of a sit. So we're willing to tolerate, not be surprised by the unpleasantness of the body and the unpleasantness of the mind, if the mind is out of balance in some way. And to encourage a settling, you might want to take a couple of slow, deep, full breaths in and out. As if we have all the time in the world Eventually let the breath continue on its own. We're trusting the body to do the breathing. spend about 10 minutes or so with the loving-kindness practice just to get some support, get some experience with the formal loving-kindness practice. So tonight again we'll begin with an easy person. Bring to mind somebody easy to love. And usually it's best not to begin with a complicated relationship like a partner. But some mentor or a niece, a nephew, a grandchild, even a pet. But some being that for you, the heart naturally opens, is responsive, kindness and compassion. Having a felt sense of this person. I care about your life. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may your body be healthy and free from pain. 
take care of your life with ease and joy. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May the body be healthy and free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. And continue a few more times on your own. And remember, you can be creative. Change the phrase so it's meaningful. You can connect with the meaning of the words each time. And have the sense that each phrase, each repetition is a simple and free gift, a beautiful little gift of your good wish. And one more set of phrases for this initial person. Just feeling the heart as you connect with this person with kindness real friendliness. And we can also send these loving wishes to ourselves. I care about this life right here. May this heart be safe and protected in all ways. And may this heart be happy and peaceful May this heart be healthy and free from pain. 
may this heart take care of this life with ease. Just continue on your own, sending loving wishes to oneself. No need to rush. Really take your time. Connect to the meaning of each phrase that's repeated. Take a few moments, bring to mind other easy people, good friends or loved ones. You could bring to mind an individual, but you could also bring to mind a group like your siblings or your children all together. I care about your lives. May you all be safe and protected happy and peaceful. May you be healthy, free from pain. And may you take care of your lives with ease and joy. Just a sense, a real visceral sense of all our loved ones, all our acquaintances, the people we work with, the people in our neighborhood. I care about all of these beings, all the birds, squirrels, all the neutral people, people we don't know well, but we do know that they also wish to be happy, just as we do. 
May all these beings, without exception, be protected, safe from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful in the heart and healthy in the body. And may all beings live with ease and joy. Caring about all beings, seen and unseen, those here in the room, (coughs) those throughout the universe, may all beings be safe from harm. And may all beings have happy, peaceful hearts, healthy and easeful bodies, May all beings live skillfully, free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. Just for a few minutes, another minute or two, you can just use a single word if you want, if you'd like. Just the word like peace, sending it out to yourself and to others, or the word ease or the word love. Just a sense of radiating out this beautiful, simple wish of ease or love. including ourselves, just as much as we include all others. Nobody is left out. Being aware, being mindful of the heart, the way that it is now, without any expectations, just feeling the body, feeling the heart in the body. Transitioning to our beautiful mindfulness practice now. So grateful just to be present with the body sitting as it actually is. And also aware of the mood or attitude in the mind, just as it is. Sitting is like this now. And we'll continue in silence now. You all know how to take care of the practice. And we'll be sitting for another 15 minutes.
we're going to begin again and again. interested in this reality of non-distraction and non-grasping.
Now for the last two minutes, you might wish to practice with the eyes open if they've been closed. Just gazing down toward the floor in front. Body relaxed and upright. Sensitive, alert. Realizing the reality of non-grasping. So aware of seeing, aware of hearing, aware of the sensations of the body, aware of the thoughts, emotions. And aware of the possibility of non-grasping, non-struggling. Letting things come and go. your time and stretch out your body as you need to. And maybe one of you over there by the light switch, the top two can go up about halfway. Not too bright, but just enough so we can see each other. Maybe a little bit less. (laughs) We don't really want to see each other. That's good, thanks. So again, tonight I want to talk a little bit about integrating practice into daily life, so maybe we'll save 10 minutes or so, at least for the end. But we have a good 20 minutes, and it's nice to hear directly the kinds of experiences you're having in your sitting, your walking practice, your daily life practice, how these instructions are supporting how you work with the experiences that are arising, what seems to be problematic in your practice, what seems to be, feels like success in your practice that you'd like to share with the group, and of course, any questions that you have. Yeah, please say your name. Uh, my name is Glenn, and uh, my, my confusion is, it seems that uh, loving kindness or striving towards that is grasping. Yeah. 
Well, certainly, just on the surface, it certainly seems like it has some element of desire, like, may you be free from suffering. You know, that seems like I'm demanding something from reality. But the, the key with the metta, the loving-kindness practice, whether you're doing the basic friendliness version or compassion or joy or equanimity, the key is to discover an actual wish in the heart. So the words, in a way, are uh, an expression of what you're experiencing. So when I think about you, even though I don't know you well, or if I think about myself or think about somebody that I care about, with a little reflecting, it isn't hard for me to actually feel directly in my heart that, uh, you know, something like, it isn't easy being a human being, may you be at ease. So, now those words I use to, like they're in alignment of some attitude or something I'm feeling. You know, when I think about myself or think about you or think about somebody I love. And so, there's this natural generosity of the heart. You know, the heart that cares. The heart that wishes well. And so, it isn't so much that I'm demanding from reality that you be at ease or whatever my wish might be. It's more that I'm feeling or experiencing something and I'm just articulating it. I'm using a phrase to help the mind notice what it is I'm feeling. And I can have that wish, like to myself, may I be at ease, may I be safe from harm. I can have that wish. I'm not focusing on how I'm going to be safe from harm or why it isn't fair that this danger is there in my life and I really want to be safe from harm. I'm really focusing on the generosity of the heart right now. Like there is this heart, there is this whatever you want to call it, that cares, that wishes well. And we're kind of naming it. We're pointing at it with our attention. And we're using the phrase to help to sustain the awareness of kindness, basically. So I I totally get where you're coming from. It does look like we're demanding something. But ultimately, you don't even need the phrase. The phrase... The phrases we use are just in the service of the mind recognizing this natural generosity of the heart, the heart that responds with compassion. Like if if we're in the proximity of suffering, the heart responds with compassion. If we're in the proximity of joy or somebody being happy or successful, we respond with joy. Like, may your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. When we're just sort of around people we care about, we respond with that basic friendliness. May you be at ease. May your heart be happy. When we're confused, when we don't know how to respond, we respond with equanimity. Things are the way that they are. I care about all of you, but I understand that things are the way that they are now. This is how it is. So these different qualities of generosity is how we go beyond our self-centered notions. Because Selfing, you know, make it a, a verb. Selfing is a way of separating ourselves from the moment, basically. We construct a sense of me apart from this the experience at hand. And love, in all of its different flavors, is a way of breaking down that constructed sense of separation, getting close. 
I mean, that's really a good definition of love, isn't it? Just to show up, to be close, to include, to not create divisions or uh, boundaries. And so the phrases are just in that service. We're not demanding anything with the phrase. We're somehow giving voice to this very ordinary but and real experience. When the heart feels safe, it cares. That's just what it does. It isn't even like, I have to do that. The heart just responds. And it's only when we're fearful, not feeling safe, that we're incapable of being generous in that way. And so the phrases you repeat, and you, there's really a lot of room for creativity in this practice. So you, you want to just see what words or phrases resonate for you. But you're just using words that help the mind notice that natural generosity of the heart. And if the words become a distraction, then drop the words for a while and just notice the movement of the heart and try to use a phrase or a word that supports, that sort of relates to that. Like sometimes when I'm doing the practice, I drop the more complicated phrases and I'll just say the word love. And it isn't even that there is love or I'm giving love or I'm receiving love. But it's just some recognition in that moment of some movement of that feeling we call love. And I'm just naming it. Or I'll name the word peace or ease. So I use these three words sometimes instead of a full phrase, you know, like a sentence. So you just have to experiment and see what works. And for sure, if you're doing the formal loving-kindness practice and the feeling of love, of that movement of that generous movement of the heart. When that's really strong, then actually you're encouraged to drop the phrases and even drop the person that you were using and just be aware of the movement of that beautiful feeling of love, that generosity of the heart. Just use that as your mindfulness object. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say your name. Uh, I'm issue has been bothering me more and more over the last few weeks. And it started with, I know where thoughts come from. I don't know where they go when I let them go. Which seemed like a strange thought. As I've been bothered by it, it's memory. And what happens when I die? If I Yeah. Unavoidable in our practice. Any human being who brings a very honest and direct attention to life is going to come up against this, let's just call it the primal fear or the existential fear or the ultimate fear, which is the fear of non-existence or annihilation. Death, physical death, is a symbol of that. It's not, we're not actually afraid of physical death. We're afraid of this sense of self that we have not being there. And so what you described is just your own personal version of how that's expressing itself in your life. That everybody in this room has their own particular version and probably can relate to what you said because our versions aren't so different 
You know, there there are only two, so many ways the mind can uh, sort of describe that fear that we have. And in terms of our practice, we need to see that fear as a doorway, as a gateway. We have to walk through that door. We have to look at that terror, that fear of annihilation. Because to be afraid of it and to always react as if the fear is telling us, is like some fears are useful fears, like, like useful information. Don't do that because you're going to get hurt. But other fears exist because of it, uh, it, of an unknown. It's not actually dangerous. It's just unknown. It's just new territory. And uh, this is the case with spiritual insight or or the transformation of our view, right? We become very used to our limited view, like just in, in Buddhist terms, the sense of separation, the idea of separation is something we're very familiar with. There's me and there's everything else. And uh, so anything that's beyond that is quite frightening because I don't know it. It's not actually dangerous or scary, but it's completely unknown because I only know this one thing. This sense of separation is what I know. It's what I'm familiar with. So we, we're frightened by losing our body because that's so synonymous with the sense of separation. You know, it's like this body contains my sense of me, the separate me. And so when that dies, it's like freaks us out because, well, what does that mean? Mean about me? Or like you described, like no memory of you, no trace of you can be, uh, evoke that same existential fear of annihilation. So it's not that we want to frighten ourselves or that even that that's, uh, something we actually actively have to do, but it will come up unavoidably. And then the key is to work with it with mindfulness, like to know where there is this fear and it's like this. And we don't want to give that fear a positive or a negative flavor. It's just what it is. It's just that terrible, uneasy feeling, you know, in the body and the mind. And can that be okay? Meaning, can the attention, the sense of mindful presence, be stable, be steady with that? Because you're interested in it. Like, interested in the information that it's delivering. What is it? How is it informing? What is? What information is it bringing? And what we begin to discover is that uh, it's an expression of a defense or a grasping. The mind is desperately grasping what isn't really stable anyway. The sense of self is something, is a thought, basically. The sense of separation, the separate self, is a thought we have. But it feels solid, doesn't it? It feels like, you know, it's me. It feels as solid as anything, but it's not really that way. I mean, you can be use that as a hypothetical. You know, maybe it's not that way. It's not the way that it seems. But we work really hard at defending it because it's what we know, it's what we're in the habit of. And so part of the way we defend it is with this very intense fear of annihilation, of emptiness, of non-existence. But we have to look at that fear. Otherwise, our whole life is defined by running from that fear, hiding from that fear. 
And that's not a very happy life. So this path of practice, what we call mindfulness or this path of awakening, it's our allegiance is with only one thing, the truth of things. We're just interested in the way it is, regardless of what that challenge is, because there's some intuition we have, and this intuition just grows and grows, becomes a great confidence that the skillful way of living is to be in alignment with the way it is. And there's no way to be in alignment with the way it is without waking up, without turning toward, opening up, relaxing with. So we turn toward, we relax with, we open up, including to these terrible fears. Now, you don't have to think about that. But you can ask strategic questions. Where is this fear? Is this fear self or is it nature? I mean, an authentic question like, is this self? Like, am I doing this? Or is it just something that comes and goes due to causes and conditions? Is it solid and permanent, this fear, or does it come and go? Now, that's sort of interesting that it comes and goes. Is it here now? It's interesting. So just to get interested in the fear, and to really begin to see it as a, a sort of a conditioned phenomena, like the weather is a conditioned phenomena, the moods are conditioned phenomena, crowds, you know, like this, all of us being here together, this is a conditioned phenomena. But we normally think everything out there is a conditioned phenomena, that what's in here, that's me. Like we always put ourselves apart from nature. And it's like the basic mistake, you know, for human beings. We think of ourselves outside of nature. And the whole practice of waking up, we're waking up that there is nothing outside of nature. It's just nature. Yeah, say your name. Maybe a little louder. Um, well, it seems like from what you're saying and also this question, like there is this sense of paradox because his question was, will people remember me or think of me if they were truly mindful all the time? But that can't be true necessarily because even when you mentioned past teachers, I mean, there is this something. So I guess for me, I study philosophy, so I'm kind of grasping at Well, the Buddha, like the Buddha was very careful from his very first talk he gave after his insight all the way through his 40 years of teaching. He over and over again returned to this point that nihilism is not the way, nor is uh, what you might call a worldly existence where we're seeking happiness through experience, like having a lot of money, having a lot of friends. So not even like bad experience, like, more power than everybody else. But like creating a utopia, that's an experience, you know, where everybody gets along. That the idea that I'm going to be happy by manipulating conditions and creating a utopia, that's not really going to lead to happiness because whatever we create in this conditioned world is going to change. 
we can't actually get it in control. We can't actually make it perfect. So that's hopeless as a as a cause for happiness. But rejecting the world is also equally hopeless as a cause for happiness. So any version of nihilism isn't going to lead to happiness. So the, the Buddhist point was that doesn't work and that doesn't work. So then what works? Well, what he would say is what works is the transformation of understanding driven by seeing things as they are. Because the reason that we gravitate towards trying to find happiness in the world or trying to find happiness by rejecting the world is because of our initial wrong view. We assume there is a somebody that needs to be saved or we assume that there is somebody who needs a perfect world or who's sick and tired of the world. And so then we swing back and forth between worldly attempts to be happy and, you know, nihilistic attempts to be happy, which don't work. So he says, well, pay really close attention, develop the steadiness of attention, this continuity of mindfulness, and it will gradually dawn on the mind that there isn't a problem. In a profound way, there isn't a problem. And then all there is left is life responding, nature responding naturally. And that's what, that's the liberation the Buddha points to is a way of being, a human being, a way of having a personality, a life, circumstances, relationship, a way of engaging life that has, uh, uprooted self-centered fear, drama, that doesn't mean the personality's gone. It just means that the, the personality has been liberated from greed and aversion. So I don't know if that's sort of what you're talking about, but there is something. It is a nihilistic. And it's really hard because the, the easiest thing for us to get when you start hearing some of the teachings of the Buddha is that he's saying that worldly pleasures isn't the way. It's not that worldly pleasures are bad. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having good friends. Certainly nothing wrong with having a healthy body. Isn't anything wrong with having good food, living in a safe place. These are what we'd call relative comforts. And to, they are to be appreciated. And you can't really practice unless you have at least a certain amount of those relative comforts. Because if we were in poverty, if we were in a war zone, it would not be easy to get interested in mindfulness. Because we'd be totally caught up in survival. So we need a certain amount of worldly comforts just to be even interested in like looking more deeply at experience. But that the real freedom comes from the transformation of our understanding, like our underlying view. So in the terms of the Eightfold Path, the sort of way the Buddha described how to practice, and instead of eight ways, I'll just talk about it in three ways. We bring mindfulness to our relationships. I think I mentioned this week too. We bring mindfulness to our relationships and we purify them with mindfulness. We notice how being mean doesn't help and how being kind really helps. Justifying harming others doesn't really work. So we purify our relationships, then we purify our mind. That's the second part of practice where we're bringing mindfulness to the mind. And in the same way that we try to bring a lot of integrity to our relationships out in the world, well, in a way, there's like a community in our mind, like our different mental patterns 
psychological patterns, they're interacting with each other and much the same way we're interacting with the different people in our lives. And we can be mindful of how our mind is interacting with itself and clean it up. We can bring a lot of integrity to how the mind is, you know, by uh, finding ways of preventing and abandoning greed in the mind, abandoning and preventing aversion in the mind, cultivating calm, cultivating kindness in the mind. So just in terms of the, even if we're not, you know, just sitting on a chair, we still have this whole world of our mind interacting with itself, right? And that can be made to be very beautiful in the same way that all of our relationships out in the world can be based on kindness and different uh, aspects of integrity of taking turns and sharing and, you know, appreciating what everybody brings to the moment, that everybody has something to add. So all of these, we can have that same sort of, in a more subtle way, relationship or work with our mind. So we bring mindfulness to our relationships, we bring mindfulness to the mind, and then you're really talking about mindfulness of our view, where we, in, a, in the most subtle way, we're interested in the underlying view operating in the mind. Most of the time as a human being, we're completely oblivious to the underlying view. We're so busy with the details of our life and interactions, and we're just not aware that there is a view operating an opinion, an underlying perspective operating. But when the mindfulness is real steady, it becomes really obvious. And when we have a, like a, a narrow view, it's just like so obvious because of the tightness that always goes along with that narrow, frightened, separate point of view. And when the view, underlying view is very expansive, you know, we'll notice a lot of lightness that always corresponds with that really expanded, non-fixed view. You know, when we're feeling really self-centered, it's always tight. And when there's not a strong sense of self, and just, you know, one of, it's like with the loving kindness, you probably notice, when it's really flowing, it's really like an upwelling and out. But when we're in a really neurotic, self-centered place, it's just the opposite. You know, it's like an inner gravitational pull. You know, it's all about me. Why does it, Why don't you love me? Why aren't you respecting me? Um, but when it's the when there's an expanded state, a different view, then it isn't about me. It's about responding, taking care of everybody, including ourselves. But it's the heart just taking care of, responding to. And so we're getting, this last part of the practice is we're bringing mindfulness to this very subtle thing that isn't easy to see. That's why we develop mindfulness with things like the breath, with interactions, things that are more concrete, more obvious. And when we get real steady with these more obvious uh, experiences, we can start to be mindful of more subtle experiences like the operating view in the mind. And that's how we transform the view. We see it. You can't transform a relationship you're not aware of. You can't transform a mind you're not aware of. And you can't tra transform a view you're not aware of. Transformation happens when you're aware. And so the problem is we're just unaware. You know, we're too distracted, too disconnected, too scattered, too superficial to really see what needs to be seen. And so the real um, 
means for the awakening process is we develop this muscle we call mindfulness, the steadiness, balanced, relaxed attention to the way things are. And that's really what, that's the catalyst for change or transformation. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Maybe time for one or two more comments. Yeah, say your name again. something this simple, you can see how it operates in all three levels I just mentioned. It's like in terms of our relationships, and as Bronwyn just mentioned, you know, it's just such a useful way to uh, have more integrity in our relationships, more kindness in our relationships, because when we allow the body to tense up, then because the body's tight, we're just naturally going to express that in our words and our actions with each other. And people are going to, when they see us, they're going to see that tightness. And they're going to interpret it in the way they're conditioned to interpret it, like this person doesn't like me because they're tight. Now, not that they're even conscious of that, but unconsciously that's what happens. So just knowing to relax improves our the integrity of our relationships. Understanding that relationship between the body and the mind helps us understand and take care of the mind itself. It's like, it's not easy to see the ecology of the mind. But we do notice when our shoulders go up towards our ears. And then that allows us to check, oh, the mind's afraid. There's fear in the mind. There's anger in the mind, right? So it's like our body is a mirror of our mind. So we, we can notice what's going on in our body. And that can really help us get to know the mind and how to take care of the mind, how to keep it in a balanced, you know, beautiful way. And then on the deepest level, we see that the relationship between tension and view, as I mentioned a few moments ago. But, you know, when the view is expansive, the body has no reason to defend itself. It's released. And when the view is tight and narrow, it's expressed in the body. So just in terms of being mindful of the view and having a sense that there is a view even operating, we can through just something as simple as noticing the body. So in Buddhist practice, we often emphasize mindfulness of the body because it's more concrete, it's an easier beginning in practice, and because the mind and body mirror each other so well. 
Now, the mind changes much more quickly than the body, so it's not a perfect mirroring. You might have a lot of anger, right? And then the body starts to reflect that anger, but then the anger goes away because you realize that person didn't really do what you thought they did, right? But the body tension from that anger, like if you've been steaming, raging about this person for 10 minutes, the anger in your mind can go away in an instant when you realize it wasn't, she didn't really do that after all. But what got built up in your body takes some time. And if we're not careful, because we're still feeling it in the body, we'll find something to be angry about. Because we feel it, and then we just assume there must be something around that's making me angry. Because why do I feel this way? So this is why we really need to be mindful of the body, because it will trick us all the time. See, somebody else, I think, had a hand up, maybe? Yeah, Anita. Yeah. Well, there's really, first of all, words won't really work here. But the one answer that is accessible is, we're this. But don't do anything when I say, we're this. It's just that. You know, it's just this. Whatever this is, this is who we are, in a sense. And we don't need to describe this because, see, this is why it's not nihilism. Because there's this. And we know this definitively. Is anybody confused about this? Being this? No, we're not confused at all. It's not philosophical at all. And we don't need words. Do we need words to know that this is this? No. Words just confuse it. Because words create limitations. As soon as we have words, we have not that word. <laughs> right? You know, if I say, this is me, and then, it, then there's a not me. Well, what's not me? So, Buddhism is very pragmatic and direct, and so much of our existential problems come from this uh, aspect of the mind that conceptualizes some things. It's not bad. I mean, thinking is quite functional. It's useful to be able to think. It allows us to work together in community because we can communicate, but uh, there are consequences to having a sophisticated language and this capacity to imagine. Like, we can imagine being separate. We can imagine being a being that is apart, right? And then we can imagine that that being would be frightened being apart. It's like a dream. We can, we can dream anything. And then in the dream, it's like that's really true. And this is the same thing with imagination and with thinking. So we have to break that spell where the mind is spellbound by its conceptual constructions. And so the answer of who we are is, well, we're this. This is the way that it is. In Buddhism, we call it Dhamma, the way it is. It's always here. And we, we really learn to, like, take refuge here. So that in Buddhism, this is a refuge. This, right here, is a refuge. Like, we, we practice, this is our temple, this is our, uh, you know, fortress, this is what we come home to. This is what we bow down to, timeless, present, here and now, available to those who are willing to open, to look. 
who are willing to drop distraction. And when that thought arises, but is this enough? <laughs> or something like that, you know? We can notice, well, that's just this too. You know, that, that sort of movement of fear. Is this enough? So I want to take a little time to go through the handout for week six. And just to give you some thoughts about how to practice, we'll just take the last six minutes or so. If you didn't look at the sheet, you can take a look at it later. But I have five points. And as I just quickly review these five points, I recommend that you think about how you might activate it in your life, each of these. Because if you don't think about it now, don't make a commitment or resolve now, you probably won't get back to it. So the first one is, and I mentioned this right at the beginning tonight, that one of the real problems with integrating your practice in daily life is we just forget what the practice is. So just simple tricks of some pithy phrase that to you sums up the practice, like I mentioned a couple at the beginning, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Or you could use that line from Ajahn Chah, the reality of non-grasping. You can reflect on that, like use that, that phrase, the reality of non-grasping, as you do whatever you're doing in that moment. Like this moment without the grasping. And even if you are grasping, like you're fear, fearful, like don't grasp to the fear. So there's fear, but don't take that personally. So it doesn't, you can always take a step back and say, okay, well, can that be okay? No. Well, can that be okay? So the practice of non-grasping, the reality of non-grasping, there is never a moment we can't practice it. We just need to remember that that's a possibility. Or just a, just a word like ease or peace. So remembering, you can use kindness, remembering to practice is actually essential in order to practice. Otherwise, we're just a human being being swept along by habit energy, like on autopilot, doing our life based on our predominant conditioned habits. But when we insert some information, like we got some information from the Buddha, and then we are inspired enough about it to remember it in as many moments as possible through the day, then things change very quickly. Because it's like a little virus, computer virus. When that word is there, ease, it challenges all our moments of dis-ease. Well, maybe it, this disease isn't what it appears to be. Maybe it doesn't have to be this way. So, first, that's the first point. If you want to practice throughout the day, and you can, you can just see that, at best, you know, most of us are going to have an hour to practice each day, right? But we have 18 hours. So, besides our formal sit for 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it's going to be, we can practice those other 17 hours. But we need a way. So one way is just to remember. And you can even write that word down or that phrase or some line from a poem or some paragraph from the Buddha. You can memorize it. You can write it down. You can put it in your pocket. Each time you put your hand in your pocket, you remember it. Or put it on your computer screen or put it in your car somewhere. So you get reminded or come to Common Ground once a week or listen to your own Dharma talks. There's so much good stuff on the Internet these days. All of our talks here at the Center are on our website to be listened to, many other places, same thing. So there's like more than enough good teachings, more, so many ways to stay, to keep the teachings alive in your consciousness as you go about the day. 
That's one way. The second way is to get interested in a difficult place in your life, something that happens regularly, like several times a week. Might be a particular person at work that's challenging for you. Might be something like traffic or your parent. So then now, right now, choose a, a difficult situation and decide that it's going to be a teacher for you instead of a problem, something you hate. It's a teacher. And that now you're going to be inspired to be mindful. It's as if as you get close to that interaction or that situation, a, a moment or two before, a little alarm or a little mindfulness bell goes off and it's saying, honey, let's practice being mindful. And it's not about having like the strategy that's going to make it perfect. It's like that humility, that sense of open presence. I'm going to be wide awake. And if suffering arises, I'm really going to see the cause and effect process of how this heart, this mind, gets all bound up in the situation. Or if I'm able to not get so bound up, I'm really going to see how that happened. Because I'm really showing up. That's what you bring. You're not bringing a weapon like, okay, this, this is going to work. I mean, you might have a strategy. There's nothing wrong with strategies. But that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to be really interested in a difficult place. Just one, not all. Just one difficult place in your life. And if you don't choose it now, you're going to forget. And then, as many times as you can during the day, remind yourself, I've resolved to be mindful in this place. Because then it will naturally arise as that situation comes to you. It will, your memory will naturally arise. Oh yeah, I made this commitment to be really present as this thing happens. Okay? So does everybody have a place that's difficult? And then like tomorrow morning when you wake up, just remember, oh yeah, when that happens, whether it's today or tomorrow, I'm really going to be there. I'm going to feel my body, you know, be aware, mindful of my body, because I may not catch everything in my mind, but I'll see it being acted out in my body. If I get into a really tight view, narrow view, it's going to be felt in the body. My body's going to get tight. And I'll say, oh, something's afoot, because I'm all bound up. And it's like this. Okay, just keep watching that feeling of being bound up. Because we're, pre we're taking refuge in mindfulness, not taking refuge in being perfect. Because in these difficult situations, we may be quite imperfect. But we can learn from it if we're mindful. So it's not a wasted situation to be going home. Let's say your difficult place is going home and seeing your parents. And you just make a mess of it. But if you're mindful moment by moment through that, you will have learned invaluable lessons about your mind. The worst thing is to go home and make a mess of it, get all bound up, and have missed that opportunity. Because then you're going to just do the same thing next time. You're going to be even more inclined to do the same thing, having having done it and not seen anything, learned anything about it. The third thing is to every day practice relaxing. You remember when we were in kindergarten, at least my generation back in the early 60s, we had our little pad. My three older sisters used it. When I was my turn, I got the same little pad. You put it down some point in the middle of your half-day kindergarten, you lay there and took a nap. We should all be doing, we should have done that through every grade, including college, grad school, at work. Because by now, it's, it is truly insane that we're not really good at relaxing. 
because it's a skill that we could all be experts at. And what would be the downside of being really good at relaxing? So we have to practice it. So every day, give yourself five to ten minutes. You don't really need more than that. And it's fine to do it a couple times of the day, but it's better to do it a couple times than one time for 30 minutes. Five to ten minutes. And if you think you're so busy, then just like car seats. You get into your car, don't start it up. Most car seats are pretty comfortable these days. And just relax there. I mean, ideally you're lying in savasana, or you can lie on your right side with the body relatively straight. That's a nice way to practice relaxing. It's not meditating. I'm, it just it really supports your this whole path of awakening to be at ease because safety is like a proximate cause for being mindful. When we feel unsafe, we're neurotic. When we feel relaxed and safe, we're naturally curious beings. Like children, you watch children when they feel safe. They're just interested in the present moment and what's ever in front of them. So we need to be relaxed, though. Once a day, at least five minutes, once a day, just practice relaxing. Lying down in your office, coming home, lying down before you make yourself dinner, or wherever, however it works, be as creative as you need to be to make it happen. The fourth is slowing down and doing one thing at a time. So just choose an activity. Now choosing a neutral activity. So you've got a difficult activity. Now choose something neutral, like brushing your teeth. For most people, it's neutral. Turning light switches on and off, opening doors. Just choose one activity. Maybe there's a staircase at your house that you use a lot. Then that could be that one activity. Uh, maybe you're in and out of your car a lot. So getting in your car and starting, it could be that activity. But choose one activity and just slow it down a little. It doesn't have to be like unusually slow. So that it, you know, if you change the speed, it's going to be easier to pay attention to it. Because it's like novel when you do it at a different speed. And the idea is to get really interested in what's ordinary. To practice being 100% there with that ordinary experience. Like, how many times have you been really uh, present turning the light switch on? But if you do this, you will. You know, and the nice thing about light switches is we do that, you know, 20, 30, 40 times a day. So you get 20, 40 moments of just mindfulness where you're really there. And then the tendency when you have a moment of mindfulness is to have more of those moments. So does everybody have a neutral? And just choose one, because otherwise if you choose too many, you won't do any of them. Just choose one, choose one and make a resolve right now that every time this arises, you're going to be interested in it, you're going to slow down a little bit, and you're going to really be there, 100% in the experience. And there's no harm to this, it's not like it's taking a lot of time or something you wouldn't otherwise be doing. You're just going to really be there when you do it. So everybody's got something, right? Okay. And then the last thing is uh, just infusing activities with kindness. Now we practice some kindness, so just a general sense of humor, the kind of humor that comes from kindness and uh, just that uh, breaking of our heart. Like, it isn't easy being a human being. And this is the basic attitude we'd like to infuse our whole day. It's like our default attitude of 
gentleness, kindness. And it really comes from a direct perception that it isn't easy being a human being. It isn't easy having a mind and body. It isn't easy having been conditioned the way that we've all been conditioned. I mean, each of, each of us differently, but even the best, whoever here has the best conditioning, <laughs> it's still hard to be a human being. It's hard to have a body and then to lose it and not to know what that means even. <coughs> all of this is difficult. And it, it really, you see how that strips away a lot of our self-importance and and aggression when we realize that it's not easy being a human being. Now, it's not that hard to maintain that perception, which is just another way of maintaining the perception of kindness or the understanding of kindness. And you can review these five things. You've got a copy of it now, most of you, I think. And then that would just help you integrate. You might even print off week six and just keep it so that for the next few weeks you're reviewing these five things so that you can integrate them in your daily life. That will really support your formal meditation practice. To be doing it through the day really strengthens the formal practice in the same way that the formal practice allows you to practice informally through the day. So we're a few minutes over. I want to end here, but just appreciating everybody sticking it out. Remember, just use Common Ground. All the programs are open to you. Don't feel like, oh, I'm new to the practice. I can't do that retreat or I can't. Everything you want to do pretty much is open. The Buddhist studies class is one of the few that have has a prerequisite of having done three retreats. But if you're ambitious, you could easily get three retreats under your belt and even start the Buddhist studies class. So um, take a look and see how you can support your practice. And let me know if you have questions, either after programs or sometimes we have question and answers during programs. Or you can even set up an appointment to see me from time to time if you have a lot of questions and it makes sense to do it in a one-to-one way. Good luck with the practice, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.